CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 10 Becoming a new member part 2 with Katrin Tunnel Huber and Ambassador Klaus Wölfer Hello and welcome back in CEE, Central Europe Explained. My name is Sebastian Schaeffer. I'm Managing Director at the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe in Vienna. In our last episode, we discussed the latest European enlargement in 2007 and 2013 and the lessons learned. Going further, we will today focus on opportunities and challenges of European enlargement for Southeast European countries and then look at the future perspectives and upcoming changes in the region. Therefore, I'm very glad to welcome two EU enlargement specialists to share with us their expertise on the following topic. With me, I have Katharine Tunne-Huber, head of the unit EU enlargement at the Ministry for Europe and International Affairs, and Ambassador Klaus Wölfer, head of the Department for Southeast Europe and EU enlargement, as well as special representative for the Western Balkans at the Federal Ministry for Europe and International Affairs. Ambassador Wölfer is also a member of the board of IDM. Hello and welcome to CEE. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hello. Hello. Thank you. To begin with, I would like to start with a very basic question and ask you, what does accessing the EU mean for the southeastern European countries? If I can start, it's the basic orientation in the foreign policy, at least that this is uh, what is being professed by each and every one. And seen from uh, our European point of view, it has been a decisive uh, factor also of uh, stabilization, of bringing um, uh, our value system and our economic system to this part of Europe, which is, by the way, surrounded uh, by EU um, member states. Therefore, um, it is very logical uh, also to fulfill the promise of European unification, uh, which has been given decades ago, and which obviously should apply to each uh, country of the European Union if they wish so. But this has been uh, stated uh, in Thessaloniki some uh, years ago in 2003 and restated uh, over and over again, and has been a basic tenet in the foreign policy of, um, of all six countries in question. Uh, the framework and where we are, uh, there are uh, some countries with uh, uh, ongoing membership accession negotiations, some waiting to enter that stage, others uh, uh, a little bit further away, but all basically directed towards the uh, European Union. If I may add, um, Ambassador Wölfer used a very nice word, orientation. It's their basic orientation. Uh, I think you used the word because you wanted to avoid the word of European perspective, which has become a bit of a political phrase and, and nobody knows what, what the content uh, really is at the moment. Uh, so I think orientation is the right way to describe it. And more concretely, I think it's really also the driving and still it's the driving force in the countries, the main driving force for political reforms, for economic reforms, the main carrot also for positive uh, pro-European development. If we continue from there, what are the challenges that lie underneath for these countries, especially regarding their socio-political backgrounds, economic synchronization, democratization, rule of law, and anti-corruption policies? 
Well, there's still a big gap uh, between uh, mainstream European Union countries and uh, accession countries in the field of, of all the subjects that you mentioned. Maybe um, the economic gap is the one which is the most difficult to catch up quickly because um, it's long-term development. It's, it's years of a lack of uh, adequate investments, foreign investments, a lack of inclusion into the transportation and economic currents of, of Europe. If you don't have um, suitable uh, train links uh, between uh, countries of the Western Balkans and the European Union countries, you cannot fix this within a, a few months. You need long-term uh, planning. So this is a, a major thing. I'm leaving out the rule of law and democracy uh, thing, which is also, of course, a long-term project, but progress can be uh, rather uh, quickly if you have a change of orientation, a basic change of orientation of the leading politicians, uh, then uh, things can turn better uh, quickly, as we have seen in the case of North Macedonia. There, a couple of years ago, there, there was occupation of parliament and uh, very undemocratic uh, moves by uh, politicians, police and everything. This has basically turned around and uh, we have seen and uh, witnessed in the past years a very encouraging and positive development in North Macedonia, also in Albania. I think the turnaround was the biggest and, and most drastic in what is today called North Macedonia. And incidentally, even the name changed over these years of um, profound transformation. If I uh, may add a point, uh, Ambassador Wolf uh, mentioned rule of law, and I'm of your view that, you know, if, if the political top level changes, then that, of course, has a, a very important impact on the countries and the societies. But at the same time, I think to really change mentalities on every level of society uh, regarding accepting democratic institutions, um, the rule of law, anti-corruption measures, I think that's also a, um, quite a long process. And uh, EU member states have also demanded uh, more progress in, in this field. And now in the next couple of years, the focus um, will very much lie on positive developments and reforms in the area of rule of law and anti-corruption, democratic institutions. Uh, so that's where EU member states will, will put a special focus on. Ms. Mm -hmm. if I may continue uh, here, Ambassador Wolfer has um, said that certain reforms take a certain period of time, especially when you need to build infrastructure that makes sense. But nevertheless, we also heard that this promise at the summit in Thessaloniki was given in 2003. So there is a lot of time that has already passed. Now, in our uh, last episode, Mihai Raswan Unguriano said that after the accession of Croatia, it was a turning point, yeah, that the transformative power of Europe, the European Union, ended. He also said that the accession gates were closed for whatever was left east of Poland and Romania. And when we take this into account, well, what would your evaluation be uh, of the lessons learned after the last accession of Croatia? It already passed almost eight years again. And um, is this something that that hinders the new accession? Or is this something that the process in influences at the moment? Um, well, I think um, 
the enthusiasm for enlargement has in general decreased a little bit or the appetite of EU member states for enlargement. And I think the, the main problem is not with the, the candidate countries or um, future candidate countries, but uh, with the EU itself, you know, that we see that there are stumbling blocks uh, in order to be able to take decisions. Uh, we have unanimity in very important fields, so it's very difficult sometimes to, to reach a decision. The EU urgently needs reforms in various areas. Um, and I think uh, there are so many challenges also at the moment. It all started with the economic and financial crisis, continued with Brexit, which has been a huge um, challenge and had a, an impact on, on the remaining member states. So I think uh, there are questions um, the EU has to deal with. And that's what member states uh, mainly worry about, you know, before taking up uh, new members. And so I think that's the main point and not the view about these uh, future, hopefully, EU member states. Mm -hmm. Ambassador Wolfo, what do you think? I fully agree. Uh, plus, there is, of course, the aftermath of the world economic crisis of 2008-9. So uh, there were sort of uh, a more uh, cautious attitude by many uh, when it comes to more and future also financial engagements that may play a role. And of course, there is a high degree of reluctance to import problems into the European Union. I think um, the Cyprus issue um, was quite an eye-opener. There's just no point in uh, accepting new countries that bring with them major unresolved international disputes. That is also a thing. And then, of course, the Balkans, unfortunately, has this uh, reputation with some of being uh, unwieldy, uh, somehow strange and different and, and uh, uh, not quite easy to control, which for us in, in Central Europe, I think is, is different because we, are, uh, we have um, a good knowledge over centuries of, of this region and don't see it as anything exotic. It's just, uh, it's the neighbors. They have problems, there are wars there, but there have been wars, there have been worse wars in Central, Northern, Western Europe. So um, I think there's already um, an important um, distinction to a certain extent of attitudes towards uh, the area, which we see even now in the daily debates about how to go about with the accession bids by the various countries. Ambassador Wolfer, if, if, if we talk about the enlargement process, there are the Copenhagen criteria that candidate countries need to fulfill. This is something that has been introduced in 1993. Before that, there were not the set of catalog that, that were checked before a country was allowed to join uh, the mm. European Union. Is this actually still something that is used maybe as as a point to prolong the process, or rather, I think uh, Mihai also uh, characterized it as a, as a kind of fictional ideal that nobody fully can achieve anyways. So how important are the Copenhagen criteria in actually becoming ready to, to join the European Union? Yes, I think it, it, we need to strike a balance. Of course, we have to take it seriously. What we have decided uh, has to be taken seriously and, and to be applied. But of course, with a, a view, with a certain uh, sense of realism on the one hand. But above all, we should not throw away um, in the process our geopolitical senses. When uh, Spain and Portugal or Greece were accepted in the European Union, there was a clear sense among uh, the EU members of then that 
this is in the long-term basic fundamental interest of the European Union and bold decisions were taken. And we think that in the case of uh, the six countries surrounded by EU member states on top of everything, uh, we should also not uh, neglect this geopolitical aspect. We have no time to lose. The world is, um, is shaping up and the world regions are shaping up. We have the competition between the United States and China. Other players are coming in. There are huge countries um, having their voices heard uh, from Brazil, Nigeria, Indonesia, uh, Southeast Asia, Japan. In this international context, we Europeans need to get organized and uh, should not be held back by um, rather, rather minor issues. And we should apply a, a geopolitical measure, a geopolitical viewpoint at least. Ms. Huber, yeah, the, the Copenhagen criteria, how important are they still? Yes, if I may add, I, of course, um, fully, fully agree with what Ambassador Wilson just said, and I think that's a very important point that you uh, has to sort of refocus on. I'm following the enlargement negotiations on technical level in Brussels. So there is full concentration on the Copenhagen criteria, on the EU key. It's getting more and more complicated, technical. Um, the EU requests more details than ever before even starting accessions, uh, accession negotiations. Uh, the screening process before the accession negotiations becomes more complex. Um, so member states have a, a huge creativity when it comes to, you know, uh, thinking of all these technical points that have to be implemented by, by the candidate countries. And at the same time, we are totally lacking a discussion on what Ambassador Wolfford just said, the geopolitical perspective and where the EU stands and, and what our interests should be. And I think that's something, especially after the very difficult um, year 2020, where the EU was not in a position to reach an agreement on the topic of enlargement. So uh, I think now we have to refocus on where we stand and, and what we really want to achieve. If I may follow up with this, why, why do you think that the member states are becoming more and more technical and demand more and more because when we would look at, at them, um, maybe one or the other is not fulfilling the Copenhagen criteria completely themselves. Um, if I may start, um, well, I think uh, on the one side, yes, uh, not all EU member states uh, might fulfill all the criteria. That's, of course, also one reason for refocusing and uh, sort of becoming uh, stricter. On the other side, we have this sort of um, the best pupils in class, like some maybe Scandinavian countries, um, who just want to demonstrate which uh, areas are very, very important for them. But at the same time, yes, of course, uh, making it more complicated means also that it takes more time and takes longer. And um, at the end of the day, that might also be the reason for some member states. Mm -hmm. Ambassador Wolfe, would you want to add something to that? Yeah, I mean, we have come uh, now to a point where uh, it's really um, uh, quite uh, long drawn, the whole accession process, to put it very politely. <laughs> I mean, it took Croatia, what, eight years or so to, uh, from beginning to the end. And here we have now, uh, in the case of Montenegro, we have three uh, chapters closed within eight years or so. I mean, the comparison just doesn't uh, fit. And um, as we uh, rattle along this bumpy road, question marks. 
Maybe just to add, I mean, if we talk about the Copenhagen criteria, it's not only the democratic institutions and not only the readiness to participate in the single market, but it's also taken over the acquis communitaire. And uh, this includes a lot of directives and regulations that not even each and every member state fully can maybe even fulfill. So it's not only talking about the political or economical criteria, but it's also a very technical process when we look at all these different um, directives and regulations that, that are set in place, which at a certain point makes sense when we want to have not only um, a, an economic um, community. But when we talk about the existing member states, I would like to change a little bit the perspectives. How does the process also impact the old, so to say, member states? And is this enlargement something that brings additional challenges like fostering Euroscepticism because it's some sort of, we, we are better than the others and we want to, we want to preserve what we, what we have achieved? Do you experience something like this in the, the old EU member countries versus newer uh, EU member countries and also potential candidate countries? Ambassador Wolfer, maybe if you want to start. I'm not too worried about that. Uh, also because of uh, the neighbors of the region, uh, they are normally uh, all um, very much in favor of accession of the, of the six, of the Western Balkan six countries. And we have also, we have success stories. Uh, I mentioned North Macedonia, but North Macedonia became possible and, and the success became really big after they had agreed with Greece to resolve their um, lingering issues, which had been there for, for decades, actually. Question of the name, of the sheer name of that country. And there was a, a school book case of how to resolve an issue between uh, these two countries, Athens and Skopje. They, Uh, had uh, really made up their minds. And with, the, with this sort of view of, of uh, Macedonia, North Macedonia joining the European Union in the end, they made up their mind to resolve these issues. And it was top down, uh, it was uh, prime ministers and foreign ministers, but also from um, on the ground level, they changed um, reforms, they changed the name of airports, did all kind of uh, confidence building measures just to make it possible to open the the road for um, what is today called North Macedonia to proceed on that on that path. And actually there is a group uh, within, a, a big group within EU member states uh, called the Tallinn group, because years ago it was founded in Tallinn, Estonia, uh, that make a point of promoting the accession of the, of the accession process to the European Union, especially among the newly um, Accedent countries to the European Union, there's a very positive attitude towards the six joining, which is not automatic. After all, uh, they would be uh, recipients of, uh, of aid uh, from, from the European Union, cohesion funds, which would theoretically or practically um, reduce the financial resources uh, that are dished out to uh, uh, countries like uh, Poland, Hungary, uh, Romania, and so on. Uh, but still, there is um, a positive attitude, which is uh, all, all very encouraging. Even more so, uh, it, is, uh, it is worrying, extremely worrying, that for um, uh, not clear um, uh, reasons, basically nationalistic considerations of in domestic politics, 
Uh, this process is now stalled again uh, regarding North Macedonia and Albania, which is a pity and we hope that this will be uh, overcome soon. There will be um, elections soon in Bulgaria and, and uh, we hope that with goodwill on both sides uh, these, these issues can be uh, resolved and, and the process can again gain steam. Thank you. Ms. Uga, do you see it from the more bottom-up approach, uh, something uh, that this is a challenge, that this has the potential to foster Euroscepticism if this top-down process is something that is maybe a bit hard to explain to the people in the member countries and potential member countries? Well, I think in general, yes, and we have seen this with uh, the previous enlargement round or rounds that there was uh, huge uh, skepticism in, in all the member states, including Austria. Um, but I think at the moment, um, there are so many other topics started sort of with the economic crisis, the migration crisis, Brexit, and now, of course, the COVID pandemic. Um, so people have um, other thoughts and worries, and, and enlargement is actually no topic at all um, in the public debate. Um, so that's something I think that's uh, currently happening uh, sort of uh, in Brussels, um, but it's not discussed in, in the public sphere. So that's why I, at the moment I would say it's not fostering skepticism, but of course I think this could come up again when sort of the situation normalizes again in member states and accession might come closer of certain countries. But here it's always important to inform people. That's what we learned with the last enlargement round. Information, information um, that, you know, put everything in perspective. And uh, I think that will be, uh, for, for the near future, also an important topic with the member states. Thank you very much. I think at this point, this is a very good uh, opportunity to end our first part of this episode before we continue with the second part. So I would like to say thank you very much for this discussion to Ambassador Klaus Wölfer and to Envoy uh, Katalin Tunde-Huber. This was CEE Central Europe Explained, Becoming an EU Member, an IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group. And uh, we are looking forward to the second part of this episode. Thank you very much. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.